That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion on current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the torrent of news coming out of China through our daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, at our website, SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in New York this week, where I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, who just won't know what to do with himself now that Senator Bob Corker is not going to be running for re-election <laughs> since, you know, Jeremy has been calling him every day since the election last November. Jeremy, man, what are you going to do with yourself? Well, you have all this time now. There'll be another senator. Right, right. Well, and, well, and that app that I use, Five Calls, it gives you, you know, an, uh, several issues every day and the right number of your local representatives to call. So there's a bunch of people on my list pester the polls that's what it. i'm Absolutely. for that's what i came to america for anyway a few episodes ago i recommended the book little soldiers an american boy a chinese school and the global race to achieve today we are delighted to be talking to that book's author lenora chu lenora has worked as both a television and print journalist and she still lives in Shanghai with her husband, Rob Schmitz, who's been a guest on our show a couple of times, and her two boys, Rainey and Landon. She's now touring in support of this wonderful book that Kaiser and I both thoroughly enjoyed. Lenora, welcome to Senegal. Thank you for having me. Lenora, I think Jeremy and I like the book so much in no small measure because we've both raised young children in China. Well, Jeremy moved his over earlier than I did, but then, you know, we did move to the U.S. And we've been both puzzling through exactly the same sorts of issues at the center of Little Soldiers. Uh, more than that, I, I, I think that it wasn't just about your parenting journey. I mean, you really talk about you get to the heart of the major issues that, that are really bedeviling both the Chinese and the American pedagogical systems. And it's not that, just a memoir. There's right, a lot of right. research and a lot of information in it about the Chinese educational system. Yeah. Um, more than that, I mean, I thought it was just tremendously well-written and smartly observed and really entertaining, too. I think, you know, parents, no matter whether they're raising kids here or there, they're going to benefit from reading it. Uh, it's the kind of thing, you know, I've, I've been talking educators about Educators as well, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a lot of response from educators. Oh, yeah. I've no, been that, interested to know exactly how the Chinese system works, because there's been a lot said about it, but really very little, you know, a deep dive. It's, it's the kind of thing that I, I'm just going to be talking about constantly with my wife, and we all, we're always talking about it. I, I can't wait for a Chinese uh, version of it to come out. Uh, there is a Chinese version of it coming out. <laughs> there have been offers, but, but yeah, of course they, yeah. Come, they have trouble with the political with... thought control chapter. So, yeah, surprise, political surprise. thought control in the classroom. Yes. Anyway, I've been translating it on the fly to Fan Fan, who you know thinks you pretty much nailed it in terms of identifying what's both praiseworthy and you know pathological and, and deeply fucked up about about both systems. <laughs> um, but let's let's set this up a bit. So you didn't just write a book on education in China as some dispassionate observer, but you actually really dove into the subject as much as one can. I mean, you involved your own flesh and blood in this. That's right. Well, you know, it's funny when I we moved to Shanghai in 2010 and our son Rainer's his formal name. And in the book, I call him Rainy. He was a, a year and a half at the time. And, you know, he's just a little baby. And I was working on a different book, actually, at the time I was writing a book about Hollywood. But then all of these things started to happen in education and Shanghai, especially, you know, the world's focus was on the city because of that test, right? right the Pisa. The Pisa. Right. And then, you know, when Which, we... Had, I mean, I think we should explain that for people who weren't aware of it. It's uh Yeah, it's a, it's a test out of the OECD, and they go around and test 15-year-olds in pretty much, you know, nearly 70 countries. And Shanghai participated and came in number one in math, reading, and science. And it was a shock, you know, to many people. So, you know, I was watching all the news headlines, and then we actually happened to enroll our son in this sort of school just down the street. 
And uh, it was this confluence of factors. And I shifted my focus really to, to this narrative. Lenora, have you gotten any pushback or criticism for subjecting your son not only to the rigors of yes. the Chinese school system, <laughs> but also putting him in a book? Oh, that. Okay. So that's two separate questions. Let's tackle them one by one. So yes, I have gotten criticism and I, I expected that. You know, everybody has an opinion about education and parenting. And then when you couple that with China, I mean, Kelora, right? It's like fear and revulsion. But, you know, here's the thing. The Chinese understand what they're doing wrong. They really do. And later in my research and reporting, I understand that they they get this. You know, my son is forced to do a few things that he doesn't want to do. Um, that's not good for children. They've actually printed policy manuals saying, you know, authoritarianism in the classroom is not good. So these are the things that they're working on. Yeah, I mean, I, I've encountered this too. In fact, I think something we'll talk about is how a lot of the resistance, I mean, it's not coming from the Ministry of Education or even from educators. It's coming from parents. But uh, at what point did you decide you were going to actually write this book? Then? So you, you said I have to write this book about, I mean, if I were to undertake something like this after the fact, I just wouldn't be able to shake free quite the level of detail. Uh, that, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, I've always did. been, you know, as a writer, you're always taking notes every day, conversations that have happened. You know, I was watching my son go through this and it was fascinated by what he would say about it. And then what I would hear parents say about it. And, you know, a lot of the Chinese parents around me really had the same concerns. We were trying to figure out what the hell was going on inside of that school because our kids would say the darndest things. You know, I was forced to eat an egg or all we did was we sort of just sat all day long. Now, granted, these are three-year-olds. So part of you, you're sort of thinking, are they accurately describing right, what's going on? How do you actually, <laughs> right, how do you, how do you sit all day long? And, and, you know, that concerned me. So I started asking questions and, and, um, you know, in the book, I began this sort of long-standing battle with the principals and teachers over access and getting my questions answered. And eventually I have to broaden out to other classrooms and other students because I wasn't getting what I wanted. In answer to the second part of the question about writing about my son's journey, you know, it's funny as a writer, there are ways to reveal without really revealing too much. And I I hope I've accomplished that. I mean, I, I feel very comfortable with his presence, the narrative. You know, he's nine now and we talked to him about it. You know, my husband has read the text. I don't really feel that, you know, we've invaded his privacy in any way. Right. So... Tell us about the school, uh, about Song Qingling. It seems uh, really, really brutal, almost like a caricature of what people imagine about Chinese education in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> so Teacher Chen, first of all, I should say that Sun Qingling is a pseudonym. The lawyers asked me to change the name of the school, probably for good reasons. Um, Teacher Chen in the book, I would say, is very traditional, very authoritarian. She is a mean, one of those sort of teachers that actually people have been writing to me after reading the book about their Catholic school teacher. You know, she's authoritarian. She's mean. She thinks that she knows best and she's happy to let children know. You know, she actually sat 30 kids in a room and spooned eggs into their mouths until they swallowed. You know, she had very strict rules about when kids could get up for water, how long they had to lie still for nap, even they'd outgrown their nap. She was, you know, the picture of the authoritarian teacher. Give me a picture of her. So how old is she roughly? Yeah, she's in her late 40s. Okay. And, you know, I always remember her teeth because she never smiled. And when you saw them, you knew you were in trouble because it was a grimace, you know, and it was always directed at me. <laughs> yes. And the principal also was very authoritarian, I would say. She had a lot of expectations for us. You know, during orientation, she said to 300 parents in a room, you know, we don't pick children, we pick parents. I once met a mother who bought two flutes, one for herself and one for her daughter so she could practice alongside. The recorders, right? <laughs> That's right. I like that kind of parent. You know, and I look around and there are 300 bobbing heads and I realize this, this is going to be a family affair. So these were the expectations pretty much set upon parents from day one. I, I would say that that is the type of teacher where Chinese educators would like to move away from. Of course, I didn't know this in the beginning. You know, it took a little bit, a little while to understand. And, and we learned from each other. And these conversations I had with her about individual choice and allowing children to choose what to eat. You know, she's learning from me just as I am learning from her. Right. But she's hardly an outlier. There are lots of teacher chants. In, in That's a great point. I've met people on tour, you know, people have come through the Chinese system and they say, you know, Teacher Chen was my teacher. I had Teacher Chen for 17 years and I came home and my dad was Teacher Chen. You know, this is an issue in the culture. It's, it's very much about top-down authority. So some of the most painful parts of the book for me to read as somebody who's lived in China and raised kids there is just the whole bit about gift giving. I mean, we, we stonewalled and we just, just played dumb or just never played along. And, and, and part of it was the fact that, you know, we were at Fang Di, which 
I don't need to hide the name of. I mean, because they they didn't have that culture. But you of, do you need know. to explain what Fang Saudi is. So, yeah, Fang Saudi was an international school, and there were a lot of you know children of diplomats, and so yeah, they they couldn't have gotten away with with that sort of um, you know sort of naked avarice and, and expectation of, of bribery and gift giving. Um, you know, tell us about your whole experience, though, with that whole expectation of gifts and the whole debacle of the handbags. So I think most foreigners are generally able to escape this because, you know, the Chinese teacher will look at a foreigner and say, oh, they couldn't be possibly be expected to know what I'm talking about. But, you know, I sort of was in between. I'm sort of that Chinese face. I speak Mandarin. And at one point, she basically came up to me and offered her services, her tutoring services for money. And extra I had to decide help. what to do. It was called extra help. You know, at the same time, I'm, I'm hearing Chinese parents plan these sort of elaborate Chinese New Year gifts, you know, Louis Vuitton, Prada. I mean, this is a very, you know, upscale school and these families have money. And I start to wonder, what is all of that about? You know, and I find out that coach is last year and this year it's Tory Burch, you know. But there definitely is an expectation if a teacher accepts a gift that she will, that expectation of reciprocity that maybe isn't as much part of the culture here, right? right, right. Um, and I think that's the difference. And, and so what would sh- the teachers do in, in... The teacher, you know, I found reports of teachers assigning seating based on gifts, um, performance lineups, you know, it's supposed to be the tall kid in the middle, but for some reason it was this other kid, you know, you kind of wonder on what basis did she make that decision? Yeah, you, you can look at the performance lineup and figure out how corrupt a particular educational institution that's what is. They were, that's, that's what they were exactly saying about there. this teacher, right, right, right. you know, and in the countryside too, it's, you know, money for textbooks that aren't on the syllabus, you know, getting the proper transcript requires money. There's a lot of gray money in the system. And the government realized this is a major problem. Lenora, you introduce a couple of characters, Darcy and Amanda, who are both Chinese high school students enduring the travails of preparation for the Gaokao, the Chinese college entrance examination. Can you tell us about these two and the experiences that they, they've had with the Chinese education system? And and there's actually one story in particular that I thought was really interesting, which was about the, the different readings they had of The Merchant of Venice. Oh, uh, sure. Because Amanda <clears throat> had studied in the States, uh, uh, like an exchange program as well as in Shanghai, and had, you know, I think that was a great apples to apples because it's they're both yeah. teaching the same Shakespeare Yeah, I, I don't remember right? the details of that story. Let me try to talk about it. Um, you know, basically in the Chinese text, she was introduced to Shylock without understanding that he was ostracized for being right. a Jew. And so she comes over to America and is able to, in the first for the first time in her junior high school classroom in New England, read Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice, in its entirety. And she said, oh, society created the evil Shylock. You know, back in China, they used Shylock as, you know, an example of capitalism gone awry. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just a very interesting dichotomy for how the Chinese use particular texts to promote their message. Um, and Darcy, unfortunately, is a high school kid I meet, and he really, he breaks my heart because he's done everything right. He's class monitor, you know, he looks perfect from the outside, even his bangs are always perfect. You know, his, <laughs> he's the highest math score, teachers love him, he's tapped to join the Communist Party at 18, which is very rare, there's usually only a few per high school, but I discover that he has secrets, right? He has a secret girlfriend, he has a mobile phone his father doesn't know about. You know, his parents wanted him to study so badly they actually glopped glue all over the television button so he couldn't turn it on and they hid the remote but for seven years he even knew where the remote control is right it was in the toilet behind the commode so this is the kind of dual <laughs> life that he lived you know and and i really began to talk to him about you know what did he really want individually and he never felt that he could express himself in that way he eventually uh, does everything right he gets into Chong university and studies basically what his parents had told him to study i mean this is a kid who has really done everything by the book and frankly I just checked in with him. You know, I've known him for five years, and he's studying something he doesn't want to study. He's about to graduate college, and he's not really sure what he wants to do with himself. And how about Amanda? How did she fare? So Amanda ended up at a U.S. university, and she is the example of, you know, she felt like she was always her parents' property. You know, even when she was in high school in the U.S., her parents, you know, her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and they never told her. They didn't want to interfere with her studies for almost a year. She didn't even know her mother was sick until she came back to China. So it was all about, you know, making sure she's getting to that next level of education. Now she's doing great. She's at a university. She feels her math education was world class back in Shanghai, and and it's prepared her well for for an American education. There's another story, too, that you introduced about Junjun, uh, the son of a, a masseuse who, I guess, lives... She's, I guess, from rural Anhui, if I remember. And, uh, you know, you chronicle this poor kid is getting 
ready to take the high school entrance exam. And I, I think well, there's maybe a lot of people even listening to this show who aren't familiar with the fact, with this aspect of, of the Chinese education system, that you actually have to test into a, an academic high school or you end up basically with the choice of dropping out or going to vocational high school, which, you know, shouldn't be shameful or anything. But I, mean, I think it's 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 probably unusual. Uh, China's probably unusual, at least among um, you know more developed countries in having uh, this sort of an exam at that at that point, you know, you take it presumably when you're what, like 13 or 14, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 15, 16. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So t- tell us about Junjin and and uh, and his mother. I guess she goes by Lauren. Is that right? Sure, Lauren. Yeah, right. yeah so it, it's interesting. You know, the Chinese education system compulsory is still only grades one through nine. And what's devastating for most families is really that high school entrance exam, Zongkao, right? You, there's a lot of media coverage of the college entrance exam because I think in the U.S. we there's equivalency there. We think SAT, we think college admissions, but the high school entrance exam you lose seven, eight million kids every year. They're not ad- able to advance into a normal academic high school. That's a lot of carnage, right? And so I watched this kid, Jun Jun, and I've known her mother for a number of years. She's a migrant worker that I meet in Shanghai, and the the family is desperate. They have not lived together, father, mother, son, since Dream Dream was a baby. And all of a sudden, he turns 15, 16. He's about to take this exam, and he's going to fall off the educational ladder. And it's it's quite devastating to see him fail. Yeah. I mean, he's been he's had it really rough, right? He's I mean, addicted to video games. He plays League of Legends. I mean, they're basically, he's basically have z- had zero parental supervision for most of his life. He's been living in sort of these boarding houses. Abusive, right? Right. abusive boarding houses. That's right. Yeah. Abusive boarding homes. He was living with his grandparents up until about the age of 11 or 12, transferred to a boarding home. And the boarding home, you know, is basically this headmistress who's taking money from migrant workers to house their children. And there's no supervision. And, and he gets slapped around a bit. You know, it's not a healthy environment for him at all. Poor kid. Now, um, people talk a lot about uh, whether China should abolish the Gaokao because, you know, there's so many problems with the system ranging from the stresses on teenagers to, to you know, the fact that it might not be the best way to um, uh, prepare people for college, etc. But the there are reasons cheating. why. Yeah. What's that? The rampant cheating. Rampant yes. cheating. Yes. Um, but there are factors, there are reasons why... Uh, it still persists. I mean, you know, one that you hear about a lot and seems to me to have some truth is that a little like the old imperial examinations, it, it does provide a degree of social mobility to China. If you do well on the Gaokao, even if you're from, you know, some shithole town in the middle of nowhere, you can join China's elite. That's right. And I think that China needs to sell that idea that it's a meritocracy. And the more I looked into the numbers, it's actually not. If you look at Shanghai, a kid born in Shanghai with a Shanghai hukou is 55 times more likely to get into Fudan University than the national average. Um, Tsinghua, for example, took like 200 kids in 2016 from Beijing. And the same number from Hunan province, which has 96 million people. So there's massive inequality sort of built into the system. The problem is China is having trouble moving away from this Gaokao because every time you try to introduce human judgment, say essays or interviews, you know, now in Shanghai, they're even trying things like, okay, let's look at volunteering and outside activities. You introduce human judgment. And uh, as we know, in China, human judgment can be bought. Right? right, it can be influenced, <laughs> and so every time you try really? to swing in that I'm direction, <laughs> I know. Every time you try to swing in that direction, you start opening the back doors to all kinds of corruption. Yeah, uh, maybe we should issue a spoiler alert here, but I, I think that a lot of Americans who have made it two thirds of the way through the book are going to be, you know, pretty surprised when they get to the chapter that's called "Let's Do Math." Ah, okay, uh, which is you know, you, you kind of let's let's say you kind of lull the reader into a sense that. Everything about the oppressively authoritarian pedagogy was just bad. It was just wrong. But but then there's this chapter where you you know suddenly kind of talk quite a bit about you know, what's to be said for the Chinese education system. Uh, would it be fair to characterize your book as kind of a, a battle hymn of the tiger mother in 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 reverse? In reverse, <laughs> yeah. That's that's you know that's that's an interesting question. Somebody said to me, "You're you're the anti-tiger mom." You know, I yeah. I adore Amy Chua's great. She's she's endorsed the book, and I'm really appreciative of her support. Um, but yeah, I really just wanted to look into this question of how do we educate our kids and it, you know, balance, right? It's balance. But here's a question about math. Do we think math is important? Because I'm finding as I'm going on this tour, there are a lot of parents who say math is actually not that important. Really? 
I do. ridiculous. And Uh, there are research studies that show primary school math skills correlate to earnings 20, 30 years down the line. These are major, you know, massive longitudinal studies. It it is important. And I'm finding this sort of resistance to the idea of early academics here in the U.S. as I'm traveling around. It's, It's very interesting. So that chapter is really about a comparison of what, how the Chinese teach math and how the Americans teach math. And I wanted to get into a Shanghai classroom and a Boston area classroom to really show the difference. Let's talk about that. That is definitely one of the most intriguing, or at least for me, one of the most intriguing parts uh, of the book. Uh, Can you tell us what you witnessed at those sessions in Boston and in Shanghai? So the... What the Boston teacher was really great at doing is introducing a concept and then asking kids, what do you think about it? And not only that, let's apply what we just learned. And it's a very friendly classroom. The kids are sort of sitting in groups and she's at eye level talking to them. And there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of back and forth. The Shanghai classroom is really run very military style. There are 30 kids in a room and she's calling them by number. Student number two, you know, what is the square root of nine or whatever it is. And kids are sort of popping up and answering her questions. It feels like a drill. It's like drill and kill. But if you actually talk to the experts, there are certain things in math that you need to memorize. That's just something that you need to do. And I found that in Shanghai, at least, multiplication tables are being cemented to memory in something like the second grade. And the average American public school classroom is not happening until a couple of years later. And these international math experts are saying that's a little bit too late. Huh. I, I remember math class when I was a kid. Um, I mean, just as early as second and third grade. Um, and we, we play this all through primary school, this game called Around the World. I don't know if you, did you have this? So we'd, we'd organize ourselves in, in a circle and then uh, she would do these flashcards. She'd pull up a multiplication problem. And, you know, so somebody would start and they would stand next to another kid. And it was a competition. Whoever could answer the question correctly first got to advance. The other kid had to sit down. And then whoever made it all the way around that circle of chairs by defeating other people for, for how quickly they answered. <laughs> I mean, so this is, this is New York. This is, you know, up, yeah. upstate New York. I feel like American education has changed, that it was more like that. It was more That's rigorous right. and structured before. Um, and, and that it sort of softened. Uh, anyway, that, that, that's... That's kind of the great debate in American education right now. Where, where should we swing? Yeah. I mean, at one point you suggest that, that China is still a country that rewards a, a nerd bonus, whether, um, you know, they're not so interested in, in your, your you know, social skills or how you're dressed. I mean, if you're the... the, the if you're the you're you tops know, in the class, yeah, the shiba. It's like right. It's a it's a it's a cool thing. It's not. I it's mean, a you cool don't, thing. Right, right. It's yeah. a good thing to to be. Whereas you know the U.S. still subtracts a, a nerd penalty. So so, I mean, so China has had this sort of cult of the engineer that um the, this the very deeply technocratic society for a long time. Whereas the U.S. has been plagued by this anti-intellectualism. You can still find it regrettably in the U.S. Um, you know, it's a kind of anti-intellectualism that can. You know, propel a man described by our Secretary of State as a fucking moron into office, right? I mean, so is this part of is this part of this? I mean, is this is there like a culture of anti-intellectualism versus this sort of uh, you know land of nerd empowerment thing in China? Um, I mean, I think the nerd empowerment in China probably goes a little bit too far, and maybe <laughs> agree, yeah. and maybe we swing too far in the other direction. Um, you know, I grew up in Texas at a Texas high school. It was always football. Get this, you know, I tell the story sometimes, and I realize how crazy it is. Every football player in our high school was assigned six girls to decorate his house during football season and bake brownies and cookies for this one guy. Really? It was called Spirit Club. This is nuts, right? Yeah, you know? that's insane. I that mean, is it, pretty <laughs> extraordinary. I mean, it's but nice you were if you're a cheerleader, foot. right? You're... Yeah, I was on the dance team. I was on the drill, captain of the drill, drill school, team. Drill school, um, yeah. But can you imagine, you know, this this would not happen in China. I mean, there's a completely different set of values. I always loved walking into the Chinese classroom and I would say, who's number one? And everybody knows, you know, 30 hands point to the kid in the front row. Um, It almost became like, you know, an interesting game to me. But, you know, that's what they value. It's just a completely different way of looking at what's important. Lenore, you talked to Andreas uh, Schleicher. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And he's the architect of the PISA test, the international standardized test that we mentioned earlier. Um, He had some very interesting observations about China's approach to teaching mathematics. Can you share, in essence, what he said? 
So this will be a controversial view. I mean, I think all of the education experts are quite controversial in this space. But he basically is saying that it's the Americans who are doing rote memorization, not the Chinese. And he's saying that we in the U.S. classroom focus so much on application that we never get to a deeper conceptual understanding. So these kids never cement math to that back part of the brain, right? Ah, right. Um, but it, the Chinese way looks like rote learning. If you read that chapter in my book, it's, there is a lot of drilling and reciting. But then he says that they're able to move on to deeper concepts very quickly because there are certain things you just need to memorize. It enables higher order thinking. You know, I, my my uh, the math tutor that we hired for Johnny uh, last year always talked about sort of uh, numeracy and sort of a math sense. She she always talked about this sort of ineffable qual ineffable quality uh, that she said my son possessed, which was just like a feel for it. She's it, you know that that some kids sort of either got it or they didn't. And I I would sit down and I would ask her about you know so you've had a lot of experience with Asian kids and a lot of experience. And she she said the same thing. She said that um, she thinks that the the idea that the downplaying of so-called rote memorization is really misguided that what That's they're right. really imbuing kids with a feel for 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 mathematics that's quite quite important ultimately I, that's true I, I totally there are certain agree. things that still need to be memorized so you, you you came to the conclusion that chinese and americans have basically come down on different sides of the old nature versus nurture debate and and that chinese believe that it's really all about nurture that we all start with the same intellectual endowments and that we differentiate basically through how hard we apply ourselves how how disciplined we are uh, while Americans believe more in nature that, you know, some of us are just born with heads for math and others just aren't. Uh, I, I guess I've I've suspected this, too. Um, I also, though, I, I think about quotes like from Thomas Alva Edison, who's saying, you know, genius is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. I mean, there is also a hard work ethic in America, isn't there? I mean, sure. But so, so, do you think that it, it's it's as stark as you portrayed it? You know, the nature. Well, nature the, thing? you know, it depends on where you are. I've noticed that you know when I give talks at schools in New York City, they feel that where I'm describing that level of competition and that level of family support behind the kid and the hard work that I'm describing their approach to education too. I think overall, you know, if you look at studies that have followed you know five thousand children in various cultures, I think you can make that statement. But you know, New York parents and Shanghai parents, they're not a lot different, frankly, as far as what we want for our kids and our approach to education, right. just because we are in these hyper-competitive urban environments. <laughs> um, if you were to go back to that moment when you and Rob were deciding where to put Ro Rainey in school, do you think you would still have chosen Song Qingling? Knowing what you know now. What, what about you guys? What would you do? I would go for Song Qingling. You would go for Song Qingling? If I could afford it, have afforded yeah. it, yeah. Uh, I, I, I would have too. I mean, I in some ways regret that <laughs> unlike the two of you, you know, my children have... They're, they're, they're younger, they're, they're babies. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're in kindergarten in America where the educational system is run by hippies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of d would have preferred them to have a bit of Chinese discipline beaten into them when <laughs> they're young. But um, Yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely agree. I think that it, it's... it's the kids are pretty resilient. I mean, you conclude the same yes. thing. They can take a lot. I mean, and it's not going to kill the creativity. Again, in your book, and I would completely agree. It's mostly the home environment, and that's it's going to decide whether they're you know robotic automatons or. And that was just never a, a, a problem in my house. Anyway. Yeah, right, no, of course right. not. And I think right. it's much easier for you to provide you know freedom and creativity at home than it is to provide you know the kind of Chinese school that's discipline. That's right. right. Anyway, what about you? Yeah. Okay. Great. So I really worry about the kids who have Teacher Chen in the classroom. They come home and they have a Teacher Chen father, or Teacher Chen mother, where they're never really exercising their own you know individual will or making their own decisions. Um, I don't worry about that for my son. And he is now nine and he's gotten all that signaling around how important education is. You know, when you walk into the classroom, you say hello to the teacher, you pack your own bag, you take responsibility for your progress and your grades. And, you know, it's interesting. The Chinese way is not the helicopter parent. It's not, you know, it, it's not hovering over your kid. It's really about getting the habits right in the early years and then sort of letting them go. And I feel like he's gotten all those habits and, and that discipline, you know, from his schooling environment. And I don't worry about him too much anymore. So, I mean, I feel like when I finished the book, you hadn't just written a book about education. You'd actually written about something that I thought really got to the heart 
of just some fundamental differences between Chinese and Americans. You know, maybe there's, there's a metaphor in here for Chinese savings versus American consumption, the, the Chinese sort of farsighted investment versus American short-term gratification. Uh, was this kind of your intention somewhere? Was it? No, you know, that's interesting. Not at all. I, I don't I don't know how it got painted into such a U.S.-China thing. Um, I mean, I guess... <laughs> you don't? <laughs> I mean, I guess because of, you know, the, what is it? The, because I'm American, because I spend time in American classrooms. Um, I, you know, I, well, I, those I, are the points of your comparison, aren't they? I mean, yeah, the I US suppose just because of who I am. Um, that's true. Yeah, but do, do, do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, do you feel like... I mean, I, I feel like as you read this, you see, I, I feel like it, it applies more broadly than just to the narrow field of education. I feel like that's true. Yeah, you know, there's these habits. Well, it's there's this these... sort of group versus individual. That to me was the biggest thing that stuck out. And the you know? true cool thing and right. you know, the sort of deferred Hard gratification. Work, right. And, right. I, I think there's a fear, and we had talked about this earlier, this fear of pushing our kids too hard generally in the U.S. I'm not talking about Boston or New York or some of these cities, but I think generally all the language, you know, if you talk to teachers now, and I talked to a lot of American teachers for this book, they basically feel they don't have control of their classroom and they can't say to students, you need to work harder. You're not doing enough because the parents will come down on them. You can't talk to my my daughter that way. You can't talk to my son that way. Well, then who's going to say it, you know, because the parents aren't saying it. The teachers aren't saying it. Um I think there's a cultural difference in the way we look at education. At one point, you underscore a huge difference between the U.S. and China, which is the fundamental issue of respect for teachers. Um, you know, we've sort of hinted at that already in our discussion in your early chapters. Um, you know, the respect for the teacher assumes an almost monstrous form. But clearly, you come back in a later chapter to really emphasize how important it is and how it's absent in American educational culture. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So Teacher Chen demanded respect in many ways from the student and the parent. And I felt that she went a little bit overboard, obviously. A lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you actually look at the studies, the teacher's social status in China is tops in the world. Teachers are on par with doctors. There was a survey that came out in 2014. And in the U.S., it's something, it's far below. You know, half of Chinese would encourage their kids to become teachers. Can you imagine that? In the U.S., it's something like less than a third. And um, the Chinese government, it's really interesting. They understand it's important to keep social status high because it keeps teachers coming into the pipeline. People want to move into the profession. And they've worked to double salaries, um, double the funding going to salaries over the last five or six years. In the U.S., you don't hear any of that kind of language, you know. Yeah. Well, they've got to fight to even sort of keep the viability of their unions and things like that. It's, it's really, really. That's right. It's a, it's a, a totally different way of thinking about things. So. Yeah. I mean, we have these stupid things like, you know, those who can't do teach. What the, what the hell is that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereas in it China, a, if, if somebody's older than you or you respect them, you call them a teacher, even if they're not a teacher. Right. They, it is such a basic uh, feature of the culture, isn't it? It's funny. I've had people say to me while I'm on tour, I talk about this teacher respect, and somebody actually yelled out in the audience, I decide whether my teacher deserves respect. Not all teachers deserve respect. And that's kind of interesting that this person even felt empowered to say this. And there were teachers in the room. You know? This was a student said this. It was a parent. A parent. Yes. Yeah. In the Bay Area. In the bed, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, regional differences, right? Yeah. It's a hard sell. Yeah. It's a hard sell. I mean, does the Bay Area have the highest concentration of Waldorf schools in the United States? <laughs> it's possible, right? That's where a lot of the child-centered learning is really originating, is in is California. Yeah. In California, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Do, do you see any way forward? I mean, to, to, how do we just imbue it in the culture to, to, to have more respect for teachers? You know, when I told this parent, I said, it has to start somewhere. You know, if we're making individual decisions, like I did with Teacher Chen, I challenged her on pretty much everything I didn't like. And there was so much, you know. But if we're making individual decisions about whether our teachers are worthy of respect, we, we should just remember that they're in charge of our kids for eight hours a day. I mean, they're really spending more time with our kids than we are. And that relationship alone, you know, think about it. Right, 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 right. I mean, it almost seems like a bland conclusion to say that there are the things about both systems that are good and bad and, you know, that we can learn from both. Um, you know, Amy Chua's book sort of comes to that same conclusion. It, it is sort of all about a synthesis, but you can't just order off a menu, obviously. You can't just say, you know, yes on math rigor, this is what you said, or no to unblinking obedience. Uh, so how do you blend? I mean, actually, what in practice, how does one blend yeah, the two? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think because we have so many choices for schooling here in the U.S., you really have to look at what you're doing. Um, 
early math is important if you're not, you know, and frankly, kids are not going to learn math unless you sit down and do it. If they're not getting it, that at school, maybe you need to supplement at home. You know, and I think that in the U.S., it's much more individual than for a Chinese family in China because their school is so regimented and formal, and there's a national curriculum. So I think we need to be thinking about these issues. Where are the weaknesses? What are the strengths? And how do we plug the weaknesses? When I I moved to the states, I moved to a. a I chose where I lived based on the quality of the public schools, and I understood that it's generally a direct correlation with the, the property tax, right? So places with high property tax rates result in. in but I, I've come to realize that uh, a lot of what I had heard in China about the educational system in the U.S. just wasn't true. One of the things that surprised me is the extent to which the school expects parental participation. Here in, re- here in the U.S. Here in the U.S., at least where I live in Chapel Hill, they really expect you to get very involved in their, in their and the parents really do. They're always chatting with each other. Everyone sort of knows what the kids' projects are, and and there you, you see it. It's it's quite uniform. You see a lot of parental participation in 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 the work. Um, you know, I go to drop the kids off at a birthday party, and everyone knows what everyone else is 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 up to. They 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 know the internal dynamics in the classroom. They they have things to say about the teachers. They they're it's it's. I'm, I was really pleasantly surprised. I mean, I didn't yeah. think that that it you know was the caricature of of the American education. Maybe it's just sort of you know because of of where I ended up living. But I I, I suspect you might have had. You know, well, me and and others in mind when you talked about how um, you know we generally agree that the ideal upper limit in the Chinese system is sixth grade, uh, possibly earlier, depending on the child. Um, I think you know. Well, I nailed that. I mean, I, we moved when Gwenny turned six. I, I, we hit, hit, finished sixth grade, and, and there's a big difference. No, I mean, even yeah. my son. No, fourth I, grade. I, yeah, I, no, I mean, I said earlier. I right. wish my children yeah. had, right, right. had the but same experience. Th- that's funny. That, that is that that is how 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 common is that? I mean, a lot of people say that. I, I, yeah. Well, most of most of my friends, Chinese and foreign, who are lucky enough to have choices, have to say that. Um, yeah, we feel they, choices, they'll pull out. You know, fourth, fifth grade. Some people don't last that long. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because. If you think about it, 3,500 characters by the end of fifth grade, that's a lot of characters. I mean, that's full basic literacy. And that means these kids are spending a lot of time drilling characters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I really think, I mean, I've floated this theory on this podcast before. I really think that that learning those characters where, you know, the, 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 the you know, the logographs give you very little clue to the pronunciation and, and not that much of a clue to the semantic content either. You know, there, there is just sort of this mnemonic hard crunching sort of leap that you need to make to learn Chinese and that is good that is good I mean you're making these abstract memorization feats you know 3,500 times just to be able to read at a a, a rudimentary level that wires your brain for for other mnemonic tasks I mean so when you study OCHEM in college you're gonna do you know better I I was talking about this with my with my daughter Um, like you know, like I said, she's she's thirteen. I think she's she's pretty well adjusted. She's doing well in school. She's definitely making friends. She's pursuing creative outlets. She's doing you know uh, a lot of writing, a, a lot of drawing. Uh, I, I I've been telling her about your book and and ask her from firsthand experience what she thought of the two different systems. And I think a lot of her her friends have experienced exactly the same thing. So she was in an international school in Beijing. Uh, half her classmates who graduated elementary school with her in Beijing moved to the U.S. for junior high or for middle school. I mean, literally half of them. Uh, it seems to be really, you know, a common thing, right? We were talking about the, the Finnish primary school in China. That way, you know, the Chinese will have stuck. Um, I, I've met, you know, lots, just like you, lots of parents who sort of think the same thing. So what is it about sixth grade? Do you think, what it, why sixth grade? What is, is it that, that, that character limit? Is it like that's when genuine adult level literacy has sunk in or what i think it's for so the reason i think the upper limit is fifth or sixth grade is because after that you start paying a lot of attention to entrance exams if you're in that system oh, right, right? Right, right secondly the communist party ideology starts intensifying at that level and that's also the point at which if you've made it all the way through to fifth or sixth grade you're purportedly literate you're fully literate in chinese and so those are really the three reasons yeah, so it's a nut. John, Johnny's not. Basta. Yeah. Johnny's not, because he left. Right. Grade. I mean, he left after fourth grade. I mean, he's destined to lose his. I just signed him up for a Chinese school, for a local, you know, Chinese school in Chapel Hill. Um, you know, he doesn't really have the, the, the same sort of reflexive good study habits. He doesn't habitually 
pack his book bag every morning. Well, that's the problem with Chinese education. If you're in it for too long and the demands become too rigorous and oppressive, then you start to rebel or you start to fangqi, you start yeah. to abandon hope. And I saw that with these students that I was following in the countryside. Little Dream Dream, who is you know, addicted to League of Legends at the age of 16, he'd been testing for so long. He knew exactly where he was going to fall. He knew he wasn't going to pass the high school entrance exam. And that's not great either, right? right. No, when I talk about hard work pays off in the classroom, that's really in the early years where there's still a lot of hope about a child's sort of educational progress. And all the language is about keeping these kids sort of on the ladder. And that's right. helpful. But again, too much of a good thing can become a bad thing. And that's the issue with education in China. So you're pretty sure you're going to keep Rainy and Landon in, in school all the way through fifth or sixth grade? Or uh, we're trying. I mean, so he's only in third now. He's right. got a long road ahead. And he is now getting to the point where he's complaining about homework. You know, it's about an hour now. And that's fine. You know, it's funny. These ca- these California parents, I don't mean to bash on California parents. I raised, you know, Rainy was born in California. But they're asking me, isn't an hour of homework crushing his soul? And I said, well, he still has five or six hours outside of that hour to do other things. You know, there's not a correlation between having to work hard and crushing creative and, you know, independent expression. And I think that's the link that a lot of people are trying to make that doesn't exist. Yeah, I think Dr. Spock is probably responsible for a lot of this. No, 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 no. Uh, Dr. Spock was is pretty good child-rearing stuff. I mean, it really has held up. Yeah. I think it's really okay, maybe I, have to I just re- think that maybe you can work I, I, I hard. You can have high expectations for your child without. Cr- I mean, you really have to watch carefully, right? There, our, our son's happy. You know, he's athletic. He's doing well in school. He's he's really all of these things. And this is really interesting. One of the reforms that came down last year, his school let out an hour early. Okay, instead of three o'clock, it was going to be two o'clock. And this being China, they gave us a day's notice, right? So we're scrambling to figure out how you know what to do about childcare and, and what to do with our son for that extra hour. But it, they're shortening the school day. They're really trying to lighten the academic pressure. And so we're benefiting from all the changes that they're making, you know, rigor during the daytime and more free time at night. Lenora, you, uh, you, you have two boys. Did you, in your observation of Chinese uh, schools, even you've observed a lot of classrooms, did you see sort of different treatment by gender? That's a great question. You know, the the teachers that I've encountered in Shanghai are fairly, for the most part, enlightened, and I didn't really hear them say anything odd. It's really the parents that treat their kids differently. Okay. You know, one girl that I interviewed, she was 16. She said, oh, if I fail the gal call, my mom says I can just get married, you know. So, <laughs> you know, and, and the boys obviously have to come up with a house. Yeah, everyone's saving money to buy houses for the boys so they can get married. So I think all the language is more cultural rather than around it's education. society generally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Changing tack a little bit, screens. Um, this is a huge problem facing parents everywhere, or concerned parents in China. Oh, God. Uh, me as it. well as the United States. What do you, what do, you do about screens? About Talking phones about and computers and, and iPads. Ah, that's a great question. Isn't this, isn't this like the great anxiety all parents parenting. are experiencing? There was an article, did, are smartphones destroying a generation? Um, you know, the Chinese have not really picked up onto this. You know how smoking, you know, the, there's not a lot of so the Surgeon General's health warnings about smoking. That hasn't really sunk in, right? Same thing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, right? Um, same thing with smartphones. I mean, I, I see, you know, pretty, moneyed, educated Chinese and their kids are sort of on iPhones all the time on their smartphones. Yeah. I don't think that message is sunk in. You go to the restaurant, the whole family's on their devices. On their devices. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And, well, can I ask your, your own family's sort of policy on this? We No screens. None at all. Nothing, Nothing. unless wow. we're traveling. No if you're screens. traveling, but otherwise no phone, like no, no. Them up games, in the back no of the computer. car no. or on the plane. Yep. Right? Wow. But... But I think in the U.S., just every time I come back, and I've you know been spending a lot of time here over the last eight years, the addiction to our screens just gets worse and worse. And I'm finding my friends who are frazzled working, and they come home, and the electronics have become a babysitter, right? And in China, I think you know there's yeah yeah or nai nai or there's ai or there's always somebody to sort of fill in that gap. Unfortunately, in the U.S., we don't have that. The very few people have really? domestic help or grandparents who are willing right. to help out. Yeah, I've noticed Western grandparents are not not the best at electronic babysitters. Children. That's yeah. the excuse I'm going to use going forward. Is that <laughs> so, you don't have an eye? Therefore, <laughs> right, you give so, your children iPads. No, I mean they've been terrible. My, I, I'm absolute failure. Well, you when it comes you were playing regulate. computer games with your children when they were six months old, I think. Oh, not quite that well. <laughs> <laughs> Only mildly violent ones too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that does def- depend right, on your right, definition right. of violence. 
sense for a man who has about 300 swords in his collection. <laughs> that's wow. not violent. Lenora, <laughs> so not, not long ago, I was having a beer with somebody who oversees a summer program, uh, brings American students for, to China. And, um, you know, there are students from all over the world. So she's really able to compare. And she said that 100% of the students who are taking meds for mental health conditions were from the U.S. And uh, 100% of them who had mental health issues, you know, who had these total, like, meltdowns during the, their time in China were from the U.S., not from any of the European countries, not from any of, of, of the, the Middle East or North African countries, not, not from East Asia, certainly. Uh, what's going on here? I mean, I don't know, was this something that you, you, you looked at at all? I mean, this woman was by no means some arch conservative who laments the whole coddling and pampering of American students. But still, I mean, uh, she couldn't help but, you know, report this to me that this, this, is, this is really kind of disturbing. I've talked to a lot of other people. I mean, like, you know, our friend David Moser, who runs the CET program uh, in the academic program there. He has to deal with this all the time. Uh, all people, I started asking around, people who've run programs, they, 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 this is an issue. These like The you know, Americans are crazy. I, don't you feel like it's a little bit of over-parenting, helicopter parenting, where I feel that our kids in the U.S. are kind of anxious, you, you know? Yeah. And oh, the, yeah. these, are, you know, David Moser's today. kids are probably yeah. pretty, I mean, these are, these are pretty well-educated kids generally, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Absolutely. They come from good families. But I, I think there's a lot of academic pressure here in the U.S., just like there is in China, you know, for these Shanghai teenagers too. And maybe that's contributing to it. But they're not all on Prozac, right? But yeah. isn't that also partly connected with the kind of clinicalization of, of that's true? Of, that's of, a great unhappiness in America. That's a great question, and it's funny because we've gone overboard. I mean, we we you know some people say that we overdiagnose, you know. ADHD and these kinds of things. And in China, there's no diagnosis going on at all. I've been in the back of classrooms where clearly, you know, there's a girl who's somewhere on the autistic spectrum disorder. And I asked the teacher, what's going to happen to her? And she said, well, not only is there nothing in the system to support her, her parents refuse to acknowledge a problem. And at some point, she'll just drop out of the system. And so you have here... You know, that's a system that really emphasizes group over, over the individual. There's nothing to help that individual girl because it doesn't serve the larger group and there's not the resources. Here in the U.S., we have the resources and we have, you know, the doctors and, and, and you know, are we going a little bit overboard? That's the I question. would say you, definitely. I mean, it's not just mental health. I mean, you know, gluten-free bullshit. I mean, I've never, I'm shocked. You, you, you know, you, you see steak sold with gluten-free advertising. Well, Jeremy, you're the one who's living in the hippie enclave, as you said, right? No, hillbilly enclave. Okay, different, different. <laughs> Very all right, different. All right. Well, um, with hippie teachers, though. And what about, what about peanut allergies? That's well, peanut thing, allergies, so, I mean, you know, ridiculous. People get angry notes for you having know. sent you know peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to school now it's it's so you think this is an issue too i talk to teachers i think it's an issue you know an entire school is expected to sort of ban you know peanuts from lunch boxes because of one food allergic kid and i understand there you know we should be grateful that we're at a point in society where we can do this right but the question is where where on the balance you know so before we we wrap let's let's talk a little bit about the media reception Uh, and i think you know it's weird. I'm I, looking at, at how this. I, I, did you read the same book that I did? That kind of. I mean, what's yeah. going on? What, why, the, the, I don't know. I think so. I, I think let, let's set that up a bit yeah, better. Okay. I mean, okay. the, the, some of the um, commentary on your book doesn't seem to have really understood what it's about, right? That's what you mean, Kaiser. It's, it's weirdly binary, right? It is binary. That's a great question. I think because this book really takes a look at what. The good, let's just call it the good, the bad, and the different of Chinese education, right? There's some things the Chinese think they're not doing well and things that they're trying to fix and things that they're very proud of. And when you have this kind of balanced narrative, the media comes really strongly on one side or another. I've had headlines saying, why American students need Chinese schools, as if, you know, you have an entire country here that needs to be Chinified. Yeah, the, that one. That's the, the <laughs> journal one, right? That's the Wall Street Journal headline. On the flip side, you have, you know, people have described my book as Little Soldiers Unveils the Draconian System of the Chinese, you know. It, it's really interesting, and it's a little frustrating as a writer to have this, you know, out there in the world and have people take such different takes on it. And And I just hope people read the book because they will understand how complex, you know, China is and Chinese education and even this urban rural divide. And, you know, there's so many things that you can say about it. Nuance doesn't uh, sell newspapers, though. That's I true. mean, in some ways, Amy Chua with her, you know, Tiger Mother book had a, a similar reception. I mean, the book itself. Well, she played it up a little She played it up herself. I mean, in, uh, I think, you know, and it certainly helped sell the book. Right. Yeah. So maybe you shouldn't 
worry about Play that. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should learn something. Well, you know, I've been out there talking on the road as a journalist, and I try to present both sides, and I think maybe maybe it's a little bit confusing. I don't know. You know, it's, People don't like nuance. It, it's, oh, it's, I don't know about that. But I, I feel like... It's hard to to put to write that into a headline. That's uh, that's true. Totally I mean, I think the media is in a in a stage right now where clickbait is very important. Where people's attention, there's so much battling for people's attentions. I, I had a conversation with a, a, let's just say, Washington Post editor the other day. They put something like 700 pieces of content up on their screen a day, and if something's not moving within an hour, it's off. I mean, that's how fast you have to capture somebody's attention. Oh God, that's... isn't that crazy? So you know. So that's and and that's fine, but you know I don't know what else I want to say about it. <laughs> it is also an emotional subject that you know there's aspects of the fear of the rise of China in it that I think also you know lend it towards a that's a, 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 a non nuanced interpretation. That's a great point. I also think people are bringing their own preconceptions to the issue. It's China first of all. It's either fear and revulsion, or oh China's great, or China's something to be scared of, or it's an economic giant. You know, it's it's always polarizing. It's always a, there's always a superlative in there you know and and people have ideas that they bring to the table and i think that's contributing to some of the media headlines well the the, the truth is china is the first time that sort of the american paradigm has been challenged in any serious way i mean right. on, on so level, many different dimensions forms yeah. of government Absolutely. how you educate your children it's basically yeah how like, you grow an economy exactly. everything exactly and then there's the problem that I, I think we did a podcast the other day with um, uh, Gary Lil from the South China Morning Post, which might actually air after this one. But um, he was saying that, oh, it was Jamil Andalini, the FT correspondent, right. uh, Asia bureau chief, I think he is now, who said that there are three stories about China in, in the Western media. Uh, it's big, big, China. big China, scary China, or repressive bad, China. Bad, bad China. Bad China. Big oh, China, bad that's China, a great and weird way China. To put it. Right. Big China, bad China, weird China. Which is, yeah, right. very uh, I've probably very had headlines that fall into all three categories yeah 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 you know they can say whatever they want about my book as long as people read it <laughs> yeah no as long as they, they as long as they buy it you so know jeremy yeah. that was that was actually in our dinner conversation with with gary afterwards so that won't be in the podcast itself but yeah that was i think a fascinating oh. thing okay yeah 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 uh. He, didn't, he said other things about Jimmy Landerlini that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> anyway, Lenora, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, um, and before we wrap, uh, let's say we offer our listeners some recommendations. But uh, first, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina.com. Sign up for our free daily email newsletter, download our app, visit our website, or just follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On, on Twitter, we are at News, and on Facebook, we are at Facebook.com slash News. And if you enjoy the Cynical Podcast, please leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on Google Play. Thanks in advance. Now, onward to recommendations, as is our habit Jeremy, kick us off. I'm going to recommend something I read just today, um, and I, it will hopefully still be timely next week because we won't have all died in a nuclear holocaust. Um, it's called. It's an article titled "To Deter North Korea, Japan and South Korea Should Go Nuclear," and the author <laughs> by Donald Trump. <laughs> it's not Donald Trump. The author is a gentleman named Bill Harry. Uh, Kausikan, who is the former permanent secretary of Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And whether you agree with him or not, it's a very interesting argument. We're going to be talking to a former Singaporean diplomat very soon, and we'll see if he agrees uh, with Yeah, him. I'm going to ask him about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll be talking to Kishore Mabubani very, very soon, so we're very excited about that. Uh, that's interesting. So do you do, what do, you, do you do you buy that argument? I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he makes a compelling argument. I mean, the argument is essentially that there's no way to stop North Korea's nuclear program. And the only way to stop disaster is to is deterrence. But America cannot be uh, enough of a deterrence part. because America is not going to sacrifice San, San Francisco for Japan. Uh, therefore, Japan needs the bomb. Therefore, South Korea will want the bomb. I mean, and this surely, will all, of course, piss off China. Exactly. But the argument is that what what will end up is a, a sort of a, a state that is much more stable uh, than the current situation. Huh, okay. So I, I don't know if I agree or not. I'm still thinking about it. Um, where where is that article? In the Washington Post. Okay, interesting. All right, Lenora, what do you have for us? So 
Ellen Powell launched a book the same day that I did. She's that Silicon Valley, um, Kleiner Perkins, a woman who is, you know, sort of talking about pulling the curtain back on gender issues in she the was tech the one world. Who, what happened exactly with her? She was fired or... Yes, yes. Yeah. And then filed a lawsuit for gender discrimination. And she has a memoir out called Reset. And I met her on the set of CBS This Morning because our books launched the same day. And I just think that um, she has a really interesting story. I have not read the book yet, but it's next on my reading oh, list. Oh, absolutely. So she went on to be CEO of Reddit, actually, right? Uh, so she's had, you know, a, a pretty illustrious career since. So that's right. She is, that's right. She's, she's a brilliant. pharmacy of she's, Reddit. She's really, really mm-hmm. brilliant. Uh, I mean, I follow her on social media, and she's super smart. And uh, I, gen- I mean, look, she was maybe you know one of the first. But look what's happened in Silicon Valley in the time since she's written that book. I mean, there it's it's you know it's like full Harvey Weinstein now. I mean, uh, there are a lot of people coming forward uh, to. You know, Talking about gender discrimination right. and harassment. The, the other person who is just so good on this topic of, of women in technology is Tracy Cho, uh, C-H-O-U. Tracy Cho, she's a Taiwanese-American woman, graduated from Stanford, uh, has worked at Quora, is an engineer at Pinterest. She's she's uh, an engineer herself. She's brilliant and really, really articulate on on issues of, of gender in in uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, so I and she happens also to be you know like 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 Ellen Powell Chinese American like us. <laughs> awesome, that's a great recommendation. I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. Uh, Sorry to delay this podcast's uh, conclusion, but I actually just while we're on the subject, Kaiser. I mean, you worked at Baidu, one yeah. of China's biggest technology companies. How would you compare the state of sexism in Chinese tech? That is compared a great to question. Yeah, so no, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. I think that in some ways. Companies like Baidu were doing very, very well, and others they simply weren't. So if you look at uh, the really senior management, the echelon senior management, at, at various points, uh, you know, a good 30 or 40 percent of VPs and above were female. Problem is, a, very few of them were actually in technology positions. So we had people in finance, we had people in, you know, marketing or in PR, uh, you know. Uh, we had some VP level senior engineers, like a woman named Wang Mengqiu, but, you know, she, she left. We had, uh, oh, of course, our CFO for a very long time, for eight or nine years, was was a woman and a very ardent and 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 very effective feminist named Jennifer Lee, who I worked under. So she was great. But in the rank and file, so it was, I think, 43% uh, female. But if you look at just the product teams or the, the, just the, engineers. the, the engineering teams, it was, it was, you know, a pathetically low number. No, not that different from not, the U.S. Not, oh, no, not, not really nearly that different. But, you know, in terms of uh, the ethics of the place, so there were a lot of problems like, you know, HR companies in, in would still routinely ask about pregnancy plans. They would, you know, they, you, you were still, you know, submitting pictures with your, your I mean, a lot of things like that, that, you know, they're asking you whether you were married or single. These are, these are problems. But, um, this is, you know, this is not Baidu. This is a China-wide problem. Well, this is not just the tech companies. And I think they were a little more enlightened than most. You know, uh, there were you know, some some pretty deep-rooted, deep-rooted problems. But Jeremy, we should do a show about that. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do a whole show on that. But let me move on with my recommendation. Uh, so it, it's actually since we're talking about uh, about women in in power, my recommendation is for a local politician in my town, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Election day is coming up, and early voting starts very very soon. So if you have a friend or someone in your family who lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, tell that person to get out there and cast a vote for Hongbin Gu Gu Hongbin uh, for Chapel Hill Town Council. She is the real deal. I, I don't. I rarely... Chinese as well as a woman. Yeah. So no, wow. she's 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 an American Democrat. citizen, of course. And and no, actually, so she's deeply progressive. She's oh. not. She doesn't run on you know with a partisan. Uh, I mean, she's she's running technically independent, but so it you know. She, but she's more progressive. Um, she's deeply progressive. But what's what's interesting about her is that, in spite of that, so I, I've never met anyone like her. I mean, she's she says just such conspicuous natural leadership capabilities. Just it just of uh, that type of a charisma. Uh, so she's a psychiatric researcher, quantitative psychiatric researcher at UNC, PhD from UNC. She's from Shanghai originally. Has a really interesting life story. Uh, just a really brilliant woman. Uh, um, She's a very committed progressive, and what I, I noticed her because she was so she's she's quite the figure in in our Chinese American community. There, she's she was for many years the principal of the local Chinese school, which is a huge Chinese school, really really you know good sized Saturday afternoon Chinese school. She um, though in during the summer when when you know our Weixin our, our you know our, our WeChat groups were just filled with 
angry Trumpers yelling at, at, at you know, poor progressives uh, on uh, online. Uh, she really stepped up and, and uh, in a rational and calm and quite deliberate and forceful way, just shut down a lot of, of that kind of like ad hominem attack and the argument. She was so effective at it. So now I, I look, you know, because I'm working on her campaign, so many of the people there are people I recognize from those groups who were, were real, you know, Trumper types, but they're, they're supporting her and, you know, falling in line pretty well. So I, I'm really impressed with her. She's uh, a, a true leader. I, I, you know, I hadn't realized that you didn't like uh, Donald Trump. Oh, really? She's definitely one to watch. And she's a rising star, I think, among Chinese Americans in, in the world of politics. I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners have friends in Chapel Hill. So make sure to reach out, let them know, vote for Gu Hongbin, Hongbin Gu, uh, and early voting starts soon. <laughs> <laughs> this message brought to you by <laughs> Lenora, thanks once again and, and we wish you a really great book tour and, and, and prosperity in your book sales <laughs> <laughs> thanks for this opportunity guys <laughs> great Jeremy, to see you man, great to be in New York with you as always oh yeah so the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo that's me and Jeremy Goldhorn that's me Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SupChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SupChina News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.